Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed to Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan, budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. And yet, it happens over and over again. Today, dear listeners, a history lesson with special implications for our current debt limit fight about to kick off in Congress. So, dear Budget Watchdog AF listeners, we set the table on the debt limit issues right here on this show back in early July in a fan-favorite episode 10 entitled Extra Money and More Credit. Well, the limit came and went on July 31st. Currently, the Biden Treasury Department is employing extraordinary measures to keep the nation below the total debt as of that date, July 31st. This is a serious and risky place to be, dancing up against the debt limit. Sadly, it is not an unfamiliar place to be for the U.S. government. It's happened several times in the last decade. But this time, as Republicans look at the Biden administration's spending goals against the current budget situation, they are crying foul on raising the debt limit, something they decidedly did not do for President Trump. Mitch McConnell says no way. The group Taxpayers for Common Sense, though, reminds us the ceiling has been lifted a hundred times since World War II. Will it happen again? Sounds like Joe Matthew over at Bloomberg listened to episode 10. So before we slide headlong into debt limit brinksmanship, let's pump the brakes and take a quick pit stop for the ABCs of the BCA, the Budget Control Act of 2011. Then. Unlike now, you had a Republican House with a Democrat in the White House. But the Democrats in the House today have just a three-vote margin, so it's pretty tight and not far off from the past. And as a budget watchdog, I have to be honest, the so-called party of fiscal responsibility only seems to care about fiscal responsibility when a Democrat is in the White House. See the routine lifting of the debt limit and excessive spending of the President Trump's years. But there's a Dem named Biden at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, so fiscal restraint is back in vogue, especially in the light of very, very big spending plans on proffer from the Dems in Congress. I just want to flag that in our quarter century of existence, Taxpayers for Common Sense has always believed in fiscal responsibility, no matter who controls Congress or occupies the White House. Okay, so let's roll back to the BCA. It's 2011 and the debt limit was approaching like a freight train. In times like these, wild things can be agreed to. And in this case, they agreed to all of them and adhered to none of them. Today, in service of the admonition that 
Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Budget Watchdog AF is happy to share the fiscal cliffs notes on the BCA. Joining us to break down the truths, debunk the myths, and see the forest for the trees are TCS senior analysts Josh Sewell and Wendy Jordan. Josh, those were some crazy years in your early tenure of TCS. Not only after you started was TARP in the midst of the Great Recession and doing bailout bank bios, then you had the stimulus, then the Affordable Care Act, and then the BCA. Talk to me about it. Well, forgive me, listeners, but the BCA was a budgetary bastard child of a lot of parents. The idea was, at its basic level, simple. Let's come up with enough cuts, basically a trillion dollars, that will offset the increase of the debt limit. Now, those cuts are stretched over 10 years, but every dime the cuts came up short is less debt limit relief. So Senator Patty Murray and Representative Jeb Hensarling were tasked with leading this awesome task, but their joint select committee on deficit reduction came up with nothing. Nothing? Nothing. But our super cuts for the super committee. Well, yeah, Steve, we came up with our compendium of cuts that totaled well over a trillion dollars and offered it up and the so-called super committee, they never agreed to anything. So they cut zero dollars. Josh, from our super cuts for the super committee, what were some of our suggestions? I think they were all low-hanging fruit. Ground-based ballistic missile defense. Cut those sitting ducks, $8 billion. Charge royalties on hard rock mining on federal lands, $866 million. And probably not a surprise, stop sending ag subsidies to people simply for owning farmland. Cutting that direct payment program, $50 billion in savings. Wow, Josh. I think at that time, you weren't really working on ag policy that much, but you've still worked it into this episode. Well played, my friend. The seeds were planted way back then. (laughs) And you reap what you sow, as they say. Those all seem like no-brainers. Yeah, but you could describe the super committee that way too. There were some who tried to exploit the committee, like the ag committee, for who the leaders offered a trillion-dollar farm bill that supposedly spent $23 billion less than the baseline, so it was a deficit reducer. And then there were others who just assumed the super committee would go away and business would get back to usual. But it didn't really uh, completely work out that way. What was the stick? What was the enforcement mechanism that prevented business as usual, at least to some extent? Well, in case the super committee failed to be super, there was a specter that has haunted Washington since sequestration. Okay. So I've heard of that relic from Graham Rudman's howling, but- uh, Steve, if I may. Uh, please. Ah, that's my other guest today, Wendy Jordan. That's right. Thanks for having me today. So sequestration is a mechanism that was intended to enforce the budget caps. If Congress couldn't get its act together and ended up overspending the allocation. Basically, if there's too much money being spent, sequestration as a procedure lops off the tops of all the budget functions. So it's an across the board cut and it lops it off to the earlier agreed upon amount. But people hate it, right? Because it cuts funding across the board to achieve the savings. The good, the bad, they all get cut. Yeah, it's mindless if you don't manage it. But the point of sequestration was that it was so relentless and across the board that presumably nobody would ever want it to be invoked. And that was really the enforcement mechanism. You couldn't possibly want everything to be cut across the board. Well, we see how that worked out. (laughs) In fact, uh, Congress didn't meet the caps. Right. So, Josh, this gets me back to the BCA. For all it is vilified, for all of this specter of mindless cuts, it really didn't do that much, did it? Right. 
Josh, this is a podcast, so more than monosyllabic is helpful. Okay. So the BCA set a target for the super committee to reach in total savings. Again, it was roughly $1 trillion to $1.5 trillion over 10 years that when coupled with avoided interest costs to service or pay for the debt. Yes, exactly. Would total at least $1.2 trillion in savings. So cut a trillion dollars, count the avoided interest, you get $1.2 trillion in savings. Now, anything less than that would be cuts spread across the 10 years. This is starting at the beginning. So if in the beginning, the super committee came up with $600 billion in aggregate spending cuts, the remaining $600 billion would be across the board reductions in both defense and non-defense spread out over the next 10 years. Yeah, but unfortunately, they didn't come up with diddly. So in the first year, across the board cuts with some minor adjustments were made. I mean, minor in terms of the federal budget, you know, in anybody's checkbook, it would not be a minor adjustment. But every year after that, there was so much complaining and crying about all the mindlessness of sequestration, which again, is the point of using sequestration as your enforcement mechanism. What that ignored was that the top line cut was made. There was so much money to work with on the defense and the non-defense side. If you live within those limits, there are no mindless cuts, right? Stick the budgetary head above the parapet, it gets cut off. Do your job, no across the board cuts. And just DOD had about a half a billion dollars allocated to it over each of those years. So plenty of money. It's not like they were hurting, but they're happy to cry poor because at the Pentagon, more is always more. And they got more. I mean, they had that outlet, that relief valve known as OCO, the Overseas Contingencies Operations Account, that totally blew past the caps by having emergency funding. I mean, our, our podcast listeners know OCO all too well, just like we do. Steve, are you suggesting the Pentagon isn't special? Yeah, they had this OCO account, which at its height was over an additional $100 billion for the Pentagon budget, which supposedly was off budget. In other words, didn't count against the caps for the Pentagon for that year, but certainly added to our deficit. So thankfully, for the first time in 15 years, maybe more, there's no request for the Pentagon in the OCO account in the FY22 budget request. So we're thankful for that. Cue taxpayers, happy dance. <laughs> you don't want to see me dancing, Steve, just let me assure you. So you had the OCO relief valve for the Pentagon, but we still had to deal with the caps for everyone else and the Pentagon. So what we saw were these semi-annual, for the most part, adjustments to the BCA caps. The BBAs. The BBA? Yeah. So the Bipartisan Budget Acts. Okay. The first adjustment came through the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012. Didn't take them long to have to find an adjustment. It delayed the sequester and reduced spending reductions by $24 billion. But after that, it was the BBA of 2013, also known as the Ryan Murray Agreement, BBA of 2015, BBA of 2018. And you get the point. Each time, lawmakers increase spending caps without any real offsets. But Get what else these deficit increasers and BCA busters include generally. Debt limit lifts. Ding, ding, ding. And here we are. Big spending with the infrastructures package and even bigger spending with the budget reconciliation package and the end of extraordinary measures looming. That's a lot this month and Congress is hardly working. I'd like to say it's enough to make a budget watchdog sigh, but we will growl. And so here we are. People are talking about the halcyon days of the BCA, not recognizing that there were some real issues here and some real challenges 
And that, yes, did the BCA have some impact? It certainly brought up times where we talked about increasing the caps and people talked about the budgets. It had maybe some impact on like sort of lowering the baseline for defense spending, still having a really increasing trajectory, still adding a lot of billions and billions up to trillions of dollars in spending. But in the end, it didn't achieve its goals by any stretch of the imagination. And it was some of this brinksmanship regarding the debt limit that's really quite scary and we're facing that right now. Yeah. And I think it's it's important to realize that the Treasury is about to exhaust its extraordinary measures. And so with such slim margins in Congress and this apparent new concern about spending, crazy things could happen again. And so I think it's really important to realize where we are right now. We've seen crazy things happen before. We talked about TARP at the beginning of this with the Great Recession and, and the eventual stimulus. And in 2008, when Congress was trying to figure out what to do or not to do as far as helping the banks out and what to do in this apparent crisis that was coming down the tracks, they did nothing at first. Well, they, they did less than nothing. They actually voted down TARP. And then while the markets were open and you just saw the market plummeting, that got them to pay attention. Honestly, I think we have been at the brink with the debt limit so many times over the last 10, 15 years that we're, we've become a little numb to what could actually happen if a solution isn't found. And it, I'm going to go back to what Josh said a minute ago. The margins are so slim now in Congress. For me, it's a little terrifying because I don't know what's going to happen. 10 years ago, when there was a debt limit vote coming, I knew what was going to happen. There was going to be a lot of talk, and then they would vote to raise the debt limit. I am not sanguine that that's what's going to happen this time. What makes it scary, I mean, you know, we talked about TARP, and obviously the stock market's been going gangbusters for a while now. The debt limit and the issues around it, the full faith and credit of the United States, are much more tricky than the stock market. And so if we actually just for a day go off that cliff, it's going to be really hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's really hard to convince the markets because what we benefit from the full faith and credit of the United States is that everybody buys our debt. And so our debt is really cheap, which is allows us to do these things like a big spending package on infrastructure or the budget reconciliation package in that we can borrow this money relatively cheaply. And if we default, even for a day, even for an hour, all of a sudden people may say, ah, the dollar, the bonds, the T-bills, they are not quite as safe as they were. And they're going to find other ways. They're not going to totally abandon the US debt. But even if they just stop buying a little bit of it and invest in other ways to hedge their cash, all of a sudden that's going to have a big impact. And you're still having issues of where is the dollar going to be the reserve currency of choice? Markets are currently denominated in dollars. Oil is denominated in dollars. It, it sounds like a lot of a ripple effect from a very small thing, but it really could happen here. And simply saying that you want to get to this to have another BCA when we know that it had some marginal impacts and had some discussions, which we appreciate about debt and the budget, it's not worth it. And we should not be playing chicken with the full faith and credit of the US Treasury. So... There you have it, the ABCs of the BCA, the Budget Control Act of 2011. Thanks for listening to Budget Watchdog AF. Subscribe and share. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We're reading the bills, monitoring the earmarks, and highlighting those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. 